0: Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This week, reports of mass civilian killings by Russian troops followed the weekend discovery of a mass grave in the Ukrainian town of Bucha. EU leaders have denounced Russia, Boris Johnson has said the killings could amount to genocide, while the atrocities prompted new sanctions against President Putin's family. Meanwhile, Russia has rejected responsibility. Its state media has dismissed the footage as fake and the sights of bodies lying in the streets as staged. Putin has instead accused Ukraine of genocide in the Donbas region, a claim German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has called ridiculous. Now, propaganda in warfare is an ancient concept, but has Russia's information campaign in this one taken it to a new level? Russia's state-controlled media and troll factories all about domestic support or an attempt to win international support? And how does the West counter fake news and help ensure that people can trust the information that they see and hear? For this special edition of Inside Briefing, we're delving into the world of information, misinformation, disinformation, both in Ukraine and beyond. I'm joined today by two people who know more than most about the way that information is used and abused. Ian Garner, historian and translator of Russian war propaganda. His book, Stalingrad Lives, Stories of Combat and Survival will be released later this year. Ian, thanks very much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And you're not actually here where I am. You're, in fact, speaking to us from Canada. Thank you very much indeed. And we're very pleased to be joined as well by Will Moy, Chief Executive and Founder of Full Fact, the UK's premier fact-checking charity in a closer end of the IFG. Will, great to have you on the show. Thank you, Bronwyn. And we're joined as well for the beginning of this discussion by Mariana Spring, who's the BBC specialist reporter on disinformation and social media, and recently presented a podcast series, War on Truth, looking at the information war in Ukraine. Mariana, welcome. Thanks for having me. Not at all. I have to say, when the BBC announced that you were going to be its reporter on disinformation, there were a lot of jokes about uh, saying, no, she isn't. But maybe those jokes have got a bit wearing (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah not my title may be somewhat misleading but my job is investigating the real consequences of this stuff
0: well look let's let's start with the first section on what disinformation and misinformation are before we get on to Ukraine and indeed the future Mariana let me start with you what do we mean by misinformation disinformation and propaganda
2: I think the best way of thinking about the difference between miss and disinformation is to think about those letters M and D. M sounds a bit like mistake. And we think of misinformation in general as the sharing of bad and false information. Sometimes people do it accidentally they might actually just be trying to help by sharing something asking people is this true i don't know what's happened here um but they find themselves obviously caught up in this ecosystem actually a part of it and spreading falsehoods and that's really unhelpful disinformation i think of the word deliberate which is when someone is deliberately sharing bad and false information um often with different aims whether that's kind of in a bid to increase um their own power to make money uh, to manipulate conversation um all of the above um, can apply. Um, and then propaganda, um, which in many ways is, is, is like disinformation, but we see it play out in a slightly often more um, overt setting. Um, and I think particularly around the conflict, uh, around the war in, in Ukraine right now, You know, when we talk about propaganda, there's absolutely propaganda on both sides, but it often has served different functions. Often it seeks to boost morale. It's often kind of patriotic content.
0: So it's more of a, a, a more organized. It's got more of a mission, even a state mission behind it.
2: Yes. And I think actually often, um, I mean, I think the words are quite intercha- interchangeable. But when it comes to propaganda, people tend to be better at spotting that often because it is so obviously, you know, in favor of one country or, or another. Whereas disinformation, particularly the tactics that have been used around the war in Ukraine, can be much more, difficult to unpick and to spot. And people might find that something is partially true, but then misused to further something else. And that's when I think you start getting in more into the kind of disinformation debate.
0: Really interesting. Will, if you look at the UK, which you do lots, um, how much of a problem is this here?
3: Well, to take Ukraine specifically for a second, UK audiences are not currently major targets of the disinformation campaigns that are being run against people in Ukraine and Russia and, and states bordering. Um, although there absolutely is reach into UK audiences and not a primary target. Um, and, Unlike, for example, after the Salisbury poisonings, when we saw a really concerted um, set of Russian disinformation aimed at UK audiences, because poisonings were in, in the UK and the UK government was challenging them very vociferously, the focus of the disinformation um, at this time is in other places. But, you know, disinformation and misinformation are a major problem for society more broadly. Bad information ruins lives, it promotes hate. It damages people's health, as we've seen so much through the pandemic, and it hurts democracy. And what we commonly see is disinformation used to amplify concerns already that people have um, selectively to polarize and build hostility and build distrust within society. And that's what we expect as one of the biggest risks around disinformation now with Ukraine is taking already difficult topics like how refugees are treated and then using disinformation to exacerbate the difficulties around them. Um, The Polish government's had to respond to that threat in Poland um, and it's certainly a real risk in the UK as that situation plays out
0: and you mentioned there the pandemic um which i and i'm very glad that you did this is an example that, that that crosses borders it's not just about about you know targeted at one country
3: absolutely we worked with other fact checking organizations all around the world mapping different claims um, starting in one country and moving to other countries, some of them hysterical and bizarre. There are helicopters spraying antibacterials uh, across the streets of various different cities around the world, according to these uh, online misinformation means. Um, and you could spot the same claim one week in Spain, one week in the UK and so on. Um, some of them much more insidious. And there are topics like that, which are global experiences. Immigration is a good example of a topic where misinformation crosses borders.
0: And in particular
3: with modern communications networks and encrypted messaging, you have uh, immigrant communities who are using messaging platforms a lot. And there's a real um, exposure to misinformation without sort of um, visibility or accountability that didn't used to be possible in the same way. So uh, as the internet is changing, our information environment is changing the vectors and the risks for misinformation and disinformation too.
0: No, well, thank you for that. that. That's really fascinating. Ian, your research looks at the history as well as the contemporary use of propaganda in Russia. Um, extraordinary subject. Before we get on to Ukraine, which we're going to do in, in some depth in the moment, Just can you give us a a bit of a sense of how Russians' relationship with information coming from their government?
1: Of course. Well, I mean, if we look historically, propaganda is designed to push people towards some political position. It could be a beneficial, benevolent political position, or it could be something much more damaging. And it's interesting that Will and Mariana both spoke about disinformation as something that is that is shattering, that is fragmenting, that is breaking apart, that is designed to sow mistrust and discord. But when we look to the history of Russian propaganda and we look to the 19th century, really the middle of the 19th century, when mass readership began in some way in the country, all sides, both the Tsarist side, who controlled most of those mass media, and the opposition, began to use propaganda to promise that better lives were coming, that utopias were coming of some sort. And we know, of course, how that grew into the Marxist promise of utopia. And what we see that's different today is that people in Russia have a much more distrustful and vexed relationship with the propaganda the government produces because it is almost exclusively disinformation. It is about shattering and fragmenting. It is about breaking down trust. And so when we hear about people supporting the war in Russia and agreeing with the government's propaganda, they're agreeing with something that we might call a kind of a negative or a negating position. They're not sure what the propaganda is promising them in the future. They're agreeing with something that simply is tearing something else apart. And it's hard to see where the government today is going with that.
0: And how did the age of the internet affect all this? These, these decades when suddenly there was lots of information, not just from your government.
1: Well, of course, when we when we talk about totalitarian nations, in my conception, and you have to re- read for City Grossman, you have to read Life and Fate for this, because he's the best at explaining what this is like. A totalitarian nation is a nation in which the subjects of the country identify or are asked to identify so completely with the language of the government that any sense of identity beyond that is simply fragmented and shattered. And the problem with the internet era that I think that we see is that it is by its very nature fragmenting, we are all in the West and in Russia able to live in bubbles. We're able to see differences between the ways that we perceive and construct the world. And we do construct these mediatized realities for ourselves, where we're able to live completely at odds. We're able to live in a completely different reality from anybody else. And so in Russia, that actually contrarily leaves the field open for the government to walk in, take its citizens and promise them amongst this confusion, we have some sort of truth, we have some sort of stability, even if everywhere around you, everything else is falling apart, and even if we're not promising you much in the future.
0: Thank you for that. And that takes us very neatly onto our second section, which is going to be to examine these questions about Ukraine that we're already inevitably getting into. Mariana, maybe I can start with you because I know you've got to go in a, a moment. Such is the, the interest in this topic. You've been running a fantastic series for the BBC called war, The War on Truth, looking at the information war in Ukraine. What has really stood out for you?
2: What, what I found while doing the podcast series is that we focused on the real people who are caught up in the information war, the people on the ground in Ukraine right now, but also people in Russia to understand what they believe and why they believe it and the real consequences of this disinformation battle, which is very much tied up with the information war, uh, very much tied up with the violence on the ground. And one story that stood out to me in particular is that of a woman with the same name as me called Mariana. Uh, Mariana is a, someone who you, you might have seen a photo of. She was pictured uh, wrapped in a duvet with blood on her. Forehead after an attack on a maternity hospital in Mariupol, Um, and she was accused at the time by the Russian government of uh, and uh, on social media and more broadly of of acting of pretending to be women in different photos of posing because she's a beauty blogger. Um, And I interviewed some of her close friends who said, "No, this obviously isn't true." She was expecting to give birth to her baby. It was it was totally terrifying, Um, and she now has spoken out. She's done an interview with a pro Kremlin journalist, and she's explained how. Uh, no, I definitely wasn't acting. But she's also been vague about, uh, obviously, because she was in experiencing the attack. What actually happened? Who did what? Um, and those, the Russian state media has ignored her rejection of the initial false claims and cherry picked and seized upon. Now these new, uh, this new idea that oh, there was never an attack from the air at all. It wasn't airplanes. Um, it was Ukraine attacking itself. Um, and it's it's very disturbing um, to to see how these disinformation narratives. Uh, conflict and um, uh, totally counter one another. And actually, like you were just talking about, you know, the fragmentation, the way that this intends to sow discord, it's incredibly hard to report on it because you're having to unpick totally conflicting narratives. And I interviewed one of Mariana's friends in Russia who still believes all this stuff, even though her friend has come out explicitly to say, even to a pro Kremlin journalist. I wasn't acting. And nothing can convince her otherwise. And I think understanding how the whole point of this is to really confuse us and get us in a muddle is is
0: crucial. And not just us, it's people in Russia, as Ian was was talking about, isn't it? What what impact has the the threat, it was more than a threat, the uh, the, uh, promise, if you like, of a 15-year prison sentence for what the state calls false reporting? What effect has that had on reporting in Russia?
2: Well, it's pushed a, a lot of journalists underground, particularly those who were uh, opposing or questioning what they were being told by the Kremlin, those from uh, publications like Novia Gazeta and also Echo Moscow, a radio station. Um, and in one of our upcoming episodes on War and Truth, we're, we're looking at this, um, speaking to some journalists who've, who've had to leave Russia about how they're attempting to reach those in Russia who, who very much believe these narratives. And, you know, you can see how when, you know, the main place you're turning for information and updates is state television. And it's telling you the same thing over and over again. Uh, you know, you become very susceptible to this kind of propaganda, and I think it just really shocked me that even someone who's who's friends with a woman who's found herself at the centre of this, you know, disinformation war, um, could still believe state TV over the testimony of a friend. You know, that just shows you how powerful it is.
0: Well, thank you very much indeed for that, and I know you, you've got to go now on this. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Ian, picking up some of these points that Marian has been talking about, but you've been tracking very closely what Russian state media has been saying during the war. How has it been represented?
1: I mean, if, if we were to take a timeline of the stories that we've seen so far the war broke with that big sort of declaration of special operation speech from Putin on the 24th of February. When he drew on all these sort of bizarre historical analogies and illusions, none of it really made any sense. And then for several days, it was simply special operation. There was very little news about the idea of there being any conflict whatsoever. Then in the first week, towards the end of that week at least, everything went wild. And we were seeing the most lurid conspiracies you've ever heard of. We heard that the Ukrainians were building a dirty nuclear bomb. We heard about biolabs. We heard about COVID being flown into Russia on birds from Ukraine. Then things settled down and there was really more of an emphasis in the second week on the economic questions and the effect of the sanctions on Russia. And the promise was that Russia is strong enough to withstand all of this. It's the West that's going to suffer. They need us more than we need them. And then in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a return to this denazification narrative. And it's become stronger. It's become more concretized. And especially in response to Bucha, it's become increasingly aggressive. It's become increasingly I've heard of scholars describe it as pre-genocidal, but I would call it genocidal in nature. And there was a particularly alarming uh, editorial in Ria Novosti a couple of days ago, that's one of the major news agencies in Russia, which essentially called for a total denazification of Ukraine, called for a punishment of citizens, called the nation essentially Nazi. And And, and
0: said, didn't it, that the political elite... Um, had to be eliminated because they couldn't be converted or something like that.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is, as a response to what we in the West saw as war crimes, this is a signaling of the doubling down of the narrative, a strengthening of the narrative, and in response, the comments that I've seen from at least some Russians on social media groups, particularly on Telegram, have really been quite frightening. We've seen calls for genocide, calls to wipe Ukraine and Ukrainians from the face of the earth, and more things that I'm not going to speak aloud, but you can only imagine how appalling some of this rhetoric is. So that there are at least some people in Russia, and I'm not saying this is all Russians, who don't just agree with the idea of genocide, but are calling for a greater degree than what the government is promising and what the army seems to be carrying out already.
0: So in that sense, it's working.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I think this language really appeals to this community of Russians who are extremely patriotic, nationalistic, mixed up with a sort of toxic masculinity, who are maybe already Putin's constituency. But perhaps you don't need to win over the entire nation to go ahead and have enough people supporting you vocally to just drag the tenor of the discourse in a particular direction. And that direction right now is very
3: frightening indeed.
0: Will, how do we counter this?
3: Well, this is the lesson that I think The UK and other democratic governments are not yet learning. Ian talked about fragmentation earlier, and I think that's exactly the way to sum it up. If you look at where people get their information from, every source of information that provides the same experience to everybody is shrinking. Television, radio, newspapers, every source of information that is growing provides different experiences to different users. Um, You know, Netflix instead of television, online newspapers, and so on. And democracies depend on a shared reality. And it's becoming harder and harder to make. It's cheaper and cheaper to reach small audiences and harder and harder to reach large audiences. And in the pandemic, we ran up against this. And the government's response, not just in the UK, but in other countries too, was in a few different places. All of the traditional news sources eventually got behind the clear public health messages that the government eventually managed to hit on, stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. Then the major internet companies started putting up what they call information centres, big banners at the top of things like Facebook and YouTube saying, here are are the facts about COVID and safety measures and so on. Wall-to-wall coverage on platforms that normally don't allow wall-to-wall coverage of anything. And then the government leaned on the internet companies and asked them to take down content that made false claims. Um, Essentially, large-scale censorship done at the request, urging and under pressure from governments, um, but by private internet companies, without really any meaningful democratic oversight. All of the political pressure was on making sure their misinformation about the vaccine wasn't spreading. So, we've had a huge um, move towards control of information in the pandemic. We're about to have the online safety bill go through Parliament. And it's time for parliamentarians to think seriously about whether democratic governments reaching to control the information environment in this way is actually a good direction for us to be going. in. I don't think it is. But the alternative is really high quality communication and investing much more in communication than you used to have to do to reach the same audiences. And if you think about how do you achieve public health goals, you do it by influencing people's behavior and talking to them and giving them knowledge, that's getting more expensive. How do you educate people? That's getting more expensive. How do you achieve tax take up and compliance and regulatory compliance and adjusting to shifting out of the EU and all the rest of it? It's about getting information to people and it's all getting more expensive unless you're talking to small, highly targeted groups of people. And the government hasn't realized that it's lost a lot of its platform and how that's going to have to shift the behavior of government. And alongside that, if you look at the Ipsos Mori Issues Index, this every month they ask people, what do you think of the biggest issues facing Britain today? And one of the top 10 issues recently for the first time in a very long time is lack of faith in politics and politicians and government. People are spontaneously unprompted saying we don't have trust in government. That has always been what happens when you ask them, but they're actually saying it voluntarily now. So in the long run there are two routes that democracies can go down. They can go down the route that they tried and used successfully during the pandemic, which is try to control the information environment, or they can go down the route that they are trying and using successfully during the Ukraine war, which is trying to win the argument and persuade people. But the thing is, people are used to disinformation coming from our own government. Our government is one of the biggest and one of the most dangerous sources of disinformation in the country. They regularly mislead the public. Wait, wait
0: I, I was listening in trance to what you're saying. Well, well, I was thinking how brilliant you made these points about government losing its platform, the fragmentation of the audiences and everything. When you, when you say, right, just explain this bit, that government is one of the biggest sources of disinformation.
3: Well, I think everybody knows it. If you ask people, what does fake news mean? They, they tell you about journalists that can't be trusted, politicians that can't be trusted. Eight out of 10 of us don't generally trust government to tell the truth. Yeah, now, this is, not to say, this is not to say that government lies all the time. It absolutely does not. We fact check them day in, day out, and much of what government says is reliable. But the point is to be trustworthy. You can't be reliable four times out of five you have okay. to be vulnerable five just, times out of five. Just, just,
0: that- just, just to give us a bit of a kernel to this rather sweeping um, statement, give us an example of, of important government disinformation. So the
3: Prime Minister has been saying in the House of Commons that employment is going up when it is going down by tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. We have pointed this out to him and he has repeated it. The Office for Statistics Regulation, set up by Parliament by law has pointed it out to him and he has repeated it. The liaison committee to which he answers in Parliament has pointed it out to him. He has admitted it is wrong and said he's taking steps to correct it, but he has not taken steps to correct it. This has happened by our count at least eight times that he has repeated this false claim that he is aware of. Now, that is just one example, but whether or not people have jobs is a pretty fundamental part of what government is responsible for. All
0: right. All right. That's a very, very good example, as I would absolutely expect from full fact. Do you want to just uh, complete complete what you were saying, and then I'm going to bring us to our third section and and bring you in back in.
3: Just to emphasise again, my point is not that politicians lie to us all the time, and actually we can demonstrate that they do not, or that government lies to us all the time. My point is that in, there is enough misleading information from government that it jeopardises the trust of the public in what it says in general. And that loss, which used to matter less when there was a more controlled information environment, is a much greater loss to our ability to deliver what government needs to deliver in the modern fragmented information environment.
0: All right, well, thank you for that. That brings us perfectly to these questions about the future, about how democracies handle this, not just in in Ukraine, not just from Russia, but handle this kind of battle for information and integrity within them. Ian, when you're listening to what Will was saying, and you're speaking to us from Kingston, near Toronto, you've got obviously a closer view on North America than we do. How do you see this kind of battle going? And um, are are democracies really vulnerable to this?
1: Yes, in a word, and will put all of those arguments together so eloquently. And We've watched, even in Canada, the goods. Canada, the, the reliable, Canada, the bastion of stability and sensibility. In the last two or three months, the debates around the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa have sprung up. And even in Canada, which is a well-off, stable nation, we're seeing people who are totally susceptible to this form of disinformation and misinformation we're seeing a total fragmentation in reality and you've got to understand that people as i said earlier are just living in different worlds it's not even that and i'm far more pessimistic i think than will is about the future especially as regards russia and i'll talk about that in a second if you would like i don't see how we can bring people back into a shared reality.
0: And we haven't, we got this far on the podcast without mentioning Donald Trump, but we have the spectacle of the US enormously divided over the integrity of its last presidential election.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, And no amount of facts or evidence seem able to persuade these people of something different. And there is an element of, Religious belief in this, not in terms of churches, right? Not in terms of the fact that we're talking about the Christian right, but in terms, I think, of a mindset. And this is where, if it's okay with you, I'll take you back to Russia. Because if we're going to ask, how do we, let's say, you know, we fast forward a couple of years, a series of miraculously good things have happened, and we're now in a position where we can say, okay, Putin's gone, the war in Ukraine is won, and we're talking about how we can fix the Russian population. How can we deprogram that population? And the problem that we have is that the Russian people for the last 70, 80 years, give or take a minor blip for really only two or three years in the early 90s, have been encouraged and have asked, to think in terms of a kind of mythical mindset, a semi-religious mindset, where there is no objective, there is no empirical truth. Truth and reality can only be interpreted as a series of allegories, as a series of aesopian tales. And so when they read about a heroic Russian soldier sacrificing themselves at the front, and Mariana and her team, or Will and his team, put forward the reality of the story, all they will say is, well, the reality may show something slightly different, but there is a higher truth here. There is a truth that's driving a messianic Russia towards saving the world, and therefore empirical reality doesn't matter. We're always moving towards a sense of apocalypse. And there is Alexander Etkind, who is an excellent scholar on Russia, and I thoroughly recommend anybody to read his work, calls this kind of thinking a sacrificial historicism. The individual lives are consistently read in the grander sweep of history, and the history is always about personal sacrifice, national sacrifice, and the sense that apocalypse is nigh, essentially. And how do you work to deprogram that and bring people into a kind of democratic, rational thinking of the sort that Will is talking about? I don't know, but I do know it's gonna be extremely hard. And I do know that Russians show no sign of being ready to shift their thinking in that way.
0: Well, I'm gonna give you the last word as we're coming to the end of this. Um, how do you respond to that indeed ap- apocalyptic sort of vision Um, of the communication wars? Well, we should take it seriously.
3: We should recognise that those are real risks, and we've been given the opportunity to look down the tunnel at a future that could be this country too, and we need to take steps to avoid it. I think that I am more optimistic. Public life is protected by a 100 institutional safeguards and a 1000 individual acts of quiet integrity. And what we need to do is tend to all of those little building blocks of informed democratic debate, things like the importance of the Office for Statistics Regulation and the Office of Budget Responsibility and high quality public service broadcasting, small things and big things, Um, things that are very technical that most people never think about, and things like the BBC that everyone sees. And at its best, is a shining city on a hill that we rolled out to Ukraine and Russia reviving the shortwave uh, service during this war for a reason. We need to think about all of those building blocks of what open, informed democracy looks like, and we need to preserve all of them. And we need to protect the public servants who have to make decisions with integrity, even when politics sometimes puts them in pressure not to. In official statistics, for example, there is a statutory body that protects official statisticians from political interference. I wonder whether we need similar setups to protect things like the government communications service and make sure that we don't slide into an ever more polarized democratic environment. But it's, it's not one big problem. We can break it down into individual, individual solvable problems. And that is why I remain optimistic.
0: Well, thank you for that, and thank you both for your immense eloquence. If um, skill of communication is any part of the answer to this, then you've both um, done us proud. That's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. So my huge thanks to Mariana Spring, who had to leave us earlier on, um, and Will Moy and Ian Garner. And thank you all for listening at home. If you like this podcast, do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. You can listen back to our event with the Chief of Defence Staff, Admiral Sir Tony Radigan on the future of defence, as well as a lot of other work. And you can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify or major platforms. Do leave us a review as well. Don't forget to visit our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk for all our latest work. I'm going to be away for a few weeks, but don't fear. Inside Briefing never goes on holiday. Hannah White, our Deputy Director, is going to be in the hot seat next week to unpick all the latest news in Westminster and beyond. See you soon.